0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Off Camera. I'm your host, Sam Jones, and in this episode, I sit down with actor, writer, director, thrill seeker, and little did I know, comedian, Dax Shepard. Crazy as it may sound, I never knew of Dax as a comedian or as the star of MTV's Punked, and I completely missed his sophomoric cinematic romps with the likes of Dane Cook. Nope, I first found out about Dax by way of parenthood, and I assumed he was a dramatic actor. I mean, he got me crying on the couch, but give me a pass. I have little kids. But something about his performance on that show kept me coming back for every episode because I noticed an authenticity in his acting that seemed almost too naturalistic and real for network drama. That was interesting enough, but then I found out he's also a motorcycle fanatic and a skateboarder whose childhood, like mine, was probably marked by more injuries than birthdays. I knew his honesty about his alcoholism, strained father-figure relationships, and his own marriage would be just as intriguing, and I was completely charmed by his genuine warmth and humanity. In this action-packed episode, Shepard talks about risk, both the real-life kind on a motorcycle, and the kinds he took to become the actor, father, and husband he is today. He also shares the gift of perspective and gratitude that he's learned from his, quote, current wife, Kristen Bell. His words, folks, not mine. Join me for a conversation so honest and revealing, we probably should have rented a couch, and also maybe some flamethrowers and helmets, too. So pull up a chair and listen in.
1: Dax, how you doing? I'm so good, Sam Jones. I'm surprised either of us have voices left because we've... Just spent the last three hours talking. I know. Preparation of our talk.
0: That was just the true (laughs) (laughs) off-camera. So you and I have something in common, and that's our shared love for motorcycles. And although I think you take your love much further than mine. um, But for the last couple of years, I've gotten really into MotoGP. Uh Uh-huh. Which I know you're into as well. And even uh,
1: though I'm super into uh, racing and I've raced cars, you know, professionally, and I'm into all that stuff, I don't really enjoy watching any of it. You know, it's like uh, watching someone have sex with your wife. You know, it's like I, I'd rather do it. I don't really want to watch someone do this. <laughs> but MotoGP is so exciting because the passing is so terribly scary. Yeah, that's what makes that thing, I, I think, way more fun to watch than any other motorsports.
0: I agree. I think it's the most exciting thing on television to watch. And and you're you're kind of, I have
1: anxiety the entire time I'm watching. Oh, yeah, yeah. My hands are sweating. I'm also, there's a voice in my head that's like, you're such a pussy. You're such a pussy. You could never do this. Part of me is like a masochistic thing watching it. Because I I, I turn it off and I just feel like a coward. (laughs) Because the guys are so valiant. But even Kristen, who could care less about any of this, she like came downstairs and, and saw a race and when she saw like the helicopter footage of them, she goes, "Oh, this is like ballet. There's something really elegant happening here." And I'm like, "Oh yeah, it, that's exactly what it is. Like ballet at 220 miles an hour." Yeah. And they're, you know, that they, they they're riding at 99.9%, and then if someone comes into their line and they've got to somehow correct when they're already a micron away from crashing, it's just it's very dramatic. I've luckily never I've, thrown it away at a track day.
0: Oh, you've not crashed. Okay. I had
1: one really, really horrific experience. Um, and if you don't know what tank slappers are, I'm sure you do. But I, when I tell this story to my friends, I urge them to go online and just type in tank slappers on, on uh, YouTube so they can see what it's like. But sometimes, indiscriminately, if you don't have a great steering dampener, which I was riding my Suzuki with a factory steering dampener, out of absolutely nowhere on the straightaway, your bars will just start going lock to lock so in this event i was shifting from fourth gear to fifth gear on the straightaway so the fronting gets a little light on that shift and i hit a weird thing and i'm going at that time probably like 140 and it's one and then it's like this the guy my friend who's riding behind me said it was laying down hash marks like you know like tire skid marks from every this and i'm like Oh my God! I'm coming off this thing at one point. The bike is doing this, and somehow it's—I like go kind of loose on the bars, and it straightens out. And I just get a hold of it, and now I'm at the very end of the straightaway. I should have been braking all that time. Now I'm at the end of the straightaway, going 100 now 120, and have to ride it straight out into the dirt. I have to blow through the turn, so I've just had the worst experience of my life, and my heart rate's already 180, followed by, oh, good, oh, no, and then off-road on the street bike. And then I somehow bounced through this field, never set it down, pulled back out onto the track, went into the pits and just kind of sat in the lawn chair like, oh, my God, oh that my was God. miserable. Oh, it took me like so 30 minutes to kind of loosen up and unwind. Oh. Now, do you consider
0: yourself, like, you know, I know this term is way overused and a cliche and stuff. But do you consider yourself an adrenaline junkie at all, or some, or do you just love? Like, do you think do you think there's something that you have to go after because it satisfies, it scratches an itch, or <clears throat> do you love it as a
1: sport? I've given this a lot of thought because I remember uh, learning in a psychology class in college that that risk taker component can be traced to this chemical MAO, right? So if you have a lot of MAO. Your brain's active, doing virtually nothing, so you can watch the grass grow, right? And they know that people who are real extreme risk-takers have a, a a real low level of MAO. And I've thought, do I have a low level? Or I think mine's more ego-related. I think I had an older brother that was five years older than me, so the gap was so extreme that I was always competing with someone that was just way beyond me, you know? you know, um, skateboarding, he could drop in on the 10-foot ramp with two feet of vert. Well, I was 11, you know, that was a very scary proposition. So I think that, coupled with no dad present and a lot to prove, like a big man complex, maybe was the perfect storm. And maybe I'm just an adrenaline junkie. Do you feel like you have to do it or
0: you want to do it? Like sometimes Uh, the skateboarding thing, I felt like, okay, I have to drop in now. Oh, yeah, yeah, You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't really want to, but
1: I have to. When you specify it like that, then yes, I definitely felt like, oh, I got to do this. I got to do this. But then if I look at the pattern of everything I was into as a kid, like, I was also super into bridge jumping, which people do in Michigan, because there's so many rivers and lakes. So it was always like, I heard there's a bridge in Ann Arbor. It's like 65 feet in the train. Okay, and then that's what we do that week. And so... I did like all that stuff, but yes, the whole time I was going like, oh, you're such a coward. you got to do this. Even the whole reason I ride bikes on the track, I'd always ridden a motorcycle, and I was a motorcycle messenger the first year I lived in L.A. But the reason I was like, I need to go to the track, and I need to get a full leather suit, and I need to drag a knee, was that documentary, Faster, came out. Oh, yeah, I love that film. And I was watching, I'll never forget, it was 4th of July, I was at a friend's house in Idaho, and we were watching this thing together, and I said, if you die... Without having conquered this, you just—you're a pitiful excuse. <laughs> I mean, I just felt like I would be. Uh, yeah, just—I had to do it. I was so afraid of it that I—I—I I, I forced myself to do it.
0: Isn't that funny? Because I do wonder about that. I wonder about the, you know, chemicals aside, and who knows. But I right. wonder about the, you know, the father influence. And oh and, yeah, you know if, you know, there's that question, if if a kid doesn't feel like like connected to their dad or loved then is there this well I don't have anything to no one cares about me anyway I might as well go try crazy stuff or is it I have to prove myself I think it's
1: like I need the approval of these other males around me because I found that the pack I was always attracted to had similar father issues and I think we were all trying to even in Fight Club there's this great line in Fight Club that I I was like oh my god yes that's me which is Brad Pitt's in the bathtub and Edward Norton's talking to him on the side of the bathtub and he said something like, we're a generation of men raised by women. The last thing we need is another woman. Or something to that effect where I was like, oh yeah, I was among one of the first generations that a good amount of us were raised by a single mom, which is my case. And I mean, that was um, for the first time pandemic level, right? Which I loved. It's the only version of childhood I know, so I, I don't dislike it. But I... I do think that did give rise to certain, obviously, there are different social outcomes of that, and we're among that generation.
0: Right. Uh, th- I noticed uh, there was a a little story arc in Parenthood, which I want to talk about a little bit, but there was a motorcycle crash that you tried to cover up, your character tried yeah, to cover yeah. up, and then uh, your wife, who's played by Joy Bryan on the show, finds out, and forbids you from writing and tries to take that away from you and and i wondered if that was generated at all from your real life or if it was just
1: a strange coincidence well you know it almost is the opposite of my real life which is and there's been a few storylines on parenthood where it gets murky because i'm very similar to crosby in a lot of ways and Certainly channeling me to be Crosby and whatnot, but then there's a lot of things that are just really different. one is like he 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 wasn't connected to his kid uh, when she was born, and that was a big struggle for him and I remember saying to Jason as the creator I'm like, "This is a thing like our baby came out, and I was like, "I will burn down the whole planet for you. you know it's just immediate for me." And he's like, no, this is a very common thing. Okay, and I had to, I had a hard time playing that. I didn't like having a place when it wasn't connected to kids. Likewise, I have such a um, fragile ego that's like I've lost fist fights on uh, Parenthood where I'm like, why is this guy? Get, why am I losing this fight? I I would be able to take this guy, and then that motorcycle accident. I'm like, guys, this is why I crashed? I just crashed in a turn. No deer ran out. No one rear-ended <laughs> me. This is humiliating. I just <laughs> fell in a turn. So. <laughs>
0: It's you couldn't, really you couldn't funny, beat that up a little, bit. silly things that I
1: won't <laughs> wrestle with in my trailer that right? mean nothing. But also, my, um, my wife is very supportive, thank God, of uh, all, the, all the racing I do and then the motorcycle stuff. She's really um, supportive of it. I think she um, feels the way I do, which is uh, although singing is not a dangerous activity for her, Singing is like, it is a part of the DNA. It's is what makes her Kristen. There's no separating those two things. And for me to go like, so I, I need you to not sing now, it just, I just wouldn't do it. And I think she's assessed for me that, like, I've been riding motorcycles since I was a little kid. It's just, it's something I do that's uh, a part of the whole equation that allows me to be, ultimately, the dad she likes and the husband right. she likes and all these other things. So she's never tried to... For lack of a better term, take that from me. You know,
0: right? Have you ever had any of any moments on your own where it came
1: up, where you had a close shave on the freeway or something, where you thought, "Oh God, this is this is." Ye- not on the motorcycle. I mean, I've been hit twice uh, in LA on motorcycles, but before I was, I knew Kristen. <clears throat> but what did happen? And again, I think this is why she trusts me somewhat. Is I try to be pretty objective. So last year I raced in a series called Super Trofeo. And um, the last race of the season, <clears throat> I was about to leave the drive to, to Fontana where the race was at. And uh, it was the first time our daughter was sick. She had never gotten a cold yet. So she, she had a cold and she woke up and she had like a fever and she's just really mopey and snuggly and just wanted to cuddle. And so I'm like doing all that, and then I'm thinking like I gotta get on the road. I, I gotta get to this race. I gotta get to this race. And I ultimately like handed her to my sister, and like she wanted to just keep cuddling. And then the whole ride there, I was like, what does my ego need? 22 trophies, 26. <laughs> What's the number where I'll feel like, yeah, you did it. Good job. You wanted to prove you could do this. And and I just felt really. I couldn't believe I was driving away from like my mopey little snuggle buddy to go potentially win a sixth trophy. It just, the the absurdity of it hit me. And I I was like, I'm not going to do this next year. I'm not going to race in this anymore. It is tricky when you're trying to evaluate what's essential to who I am and what's, you know, what is superfluous and what can I weed out. And it's, you know, it takes a lot of thought, I think. Yeah. The kind of person that, uh, all these, say, maybe things I want to do that are, are reckless or stupid or vain or all these things. Somehow that package got me all this crap. So right. I ended up with this beautiful daughter and this beautiful wife. Somehow that's all in the mix. Like, I think humans, you know, we have a suite of behaviors. Uh, so I'm an alcoholic. That's That blows. But then the upside of being an alcoholic is I'm obsessive and I'll write for seven days straight in a hotel room. Like, I have a good work ethic. Like, it's all a part of this one thing and I just gotta try to minimize all of the downside and lean into all the, the upside but you don't have one without the other I don't think you know you don't you don't just get a, a grab bag full of awesome characteristics there has to be a dark side so it's just I think in life you're just constantly trying to shrink those bad parts and inflate right. and, and the good ones
0: so back to parenthood that's where I first became aware of you and um, I I think what I took away instantly because I'm a, I was a big Jason Cadmus fan and I loved Friday Night Lights mm-hmm. and I loved the cinematography and the naturalistic way that the that the scenes played in Friday Night Lights and the same thing happens to some extent on Parenthood and uh, you came across to me as extremely naturalistic in your acting style it does not seem like you are saying lines it feels like mm. they're coming out at the speed of thought you know so I was I was just really taken by you and. And then later, I come to find out that you have this whole comedy background, um, which which took me a while, like of watching old stuff, to kind of put the two yeah, yeah, pieces yeah. together. I wondered if you always just saw yourself as a comedy guy, or if or if you know you were waiting to find something that would let you be more.
1: Well, yeah, it, it, um, it was all like a series of weird coincidences that led to that show and me being on it and yeah
0: how did you how did you end up on well it? like
1: in the quickest nutshell possible i i moved to l.a because i wanted to do stand-up and i was afraid to do it in detroit and i thought well if i move all the way across country i will have to do it <clears throat> because i have made this huge commitment well i didn't do it I, I got into sketch comedy and then i was in the groundlings and as soon as that happened my my singular goal was i want to get on saturday night live i hadn't even really considered whether i wanted to be an actor i just wanted to be on saturday night live well, then I'm acting at the Groundlings for a while, and I really enjoy acting on stage. And then I uh, get this, and I'm auditioning for terrible commercials and whatnot. And then I get on this so show. You had a period a of while of auditioning. And- oh, I had eight years of unemployed trying to get an acting job. Yeah. <clears throat> A really long eight years, uh, and then I ended up on this show Punked, right? Right. Uh, which was a reality show, but I'm doing improv and I'm doing characters and everything. So, in a, it's, it's a very poor man's outcome to right, my life goal. Right. But then I get these opportunities to be in movies right after. Punked airs. I get to be in without a paddle, which is a studio movie with two well-established actors who are mm-hmm. quite good, and mm-hmm. and so that became kind of um, again. I was acting a lot on stage, but then that becomes like um, my really condensed uh, college for acting, learning and watching these two, and just learning how it's all done, and then. I did a bunch of comedies, and then my singular goal as an egomaniac was, i got to become Will Ferrell. Like, I'm in these comedies, and now i got to become Adam Sandler or whatever. Like, this is the top of the mountain. That's where I should go. And then that didn't pan out the way I hoped. And um, I did this movie called The Freebie, which was an 11-day shoot. It was all improv and the movie turned out shockingly beautiful and great, and it got into Sundance. And it's definitely the most like um, the most positive response I've ever gotten as an actor was this movie. And because it was improv <clears throat> I couldn't do a character. Like I could have never improv for 11 days straight as a c- character. I wouldn't know enough info of that person's life or whatever. So I was really just being myself in a different situation. And, and because of that movie and seeing the result, and I had at that point been doing movies for like seven years, that was the very first time where I was like, oh, I'm interesting enough just to be me. Oh, really? I had no f- confidence that I, that I as a person was interesting enough to watch. So I was always affecting everything with either a crazy hairdo or I had an accent. Or so, a- so
0: did you, sorry to interrupt, but did you have a experience in a theater where you sort of were able to step back and see yourself as a screen presence rather than as... Yes,
1: at at Sundance, which I had never even been to, and it was in a very huge theater, and the crowd was palpably moved, which I've seen, I've been in theaters and watched um, people laugh really hard at, at comedies that I've been in, which is also a really cool feeling, but I had never had that feeling where people were like, I would look at people's faces people were like, or any, you know, variation of uncomfortable and sad and all these things. And Going was, through the experience yeah, with yeah, the yeah. character. Because it was a very, very intimate, intimate mm-hmm. movie. And, and it's about cheating and this and that. So, um... Yeah, that was the first time I had that experience of being in a dramatic movie and and moving people dramatically or not comedically. And then, so again, as luck would have it, I had all but given up on acting. I was in such a slump. I couldn't get hired. I had like three stinkers in a row. I do that movie because I love the Duplass brothers and they were producing the movie. And then I have a writing job and I'm at Imagine going over this script that I've written for them. And while we're going over notes, the head of Imagine, David Nevins, he turns to his colleague and goes, he'd make a great Crosby Braverman, wouldn't he? Would you want to do a TV show? And I was like, "Uh, okay, yeah, let me read the thing. <clears throat> I read it, and um, I liked it right away. Now, when and you then, say you read it, did you go in for Katoms and? I ended up. Yeah, so I read the script and I liked it. And at, up until that moment, I didn't think I wanted to be on TV because I was nervous about being doing something for seven years and getting bored. I was afraid I didn't have the right makeup to be interested in something for so long. That was my fear, at least. Right. And I had never set my stupid singular goal on, I want to be on a TV show for seven years. It just wasn't anything I thought about. But I read this thing and it was great. I hadn't even seen Friday Night Lights yet. And then I went and auditioned for Jason Kadams and Tommy Schlamy, who directed the pilot, who's a very amazing, he's the Spielberg of television, sure. like nine best director awards or whatever. He's West Wing. And- yeah. So, but again, the, the chronology of it is I had just wrapped that movie where I was myself for 11 days. And then now I get this opportunity to go audition for this. And I, I decide I'm not going to try to be funny in this. I'm just going to go in there and try to be as real as I can and as much like myself as I am, uh, as I can. And then I did that, and then I ended up on the show. And um, with the exceptions of being a bad motorcycle rider, you know, I've been able to incorporate how I talk or incorporate, you know, a lot of different things. And ironically, and that's a long-winded way to say, like, every time I aimed at something... I, A, never even got there, and B, was Mm -hmm. disappointed. And here, the best probably acting experience of my life has been this show, Parenthood, which I never want, you know, I didn't set out to get on it. I didn't even know that was something I wanted. P.S., I love playing the same person for six (laughs) years as Gerada. Like, I love driving to the same job every day and knowing where I'm working. Like, I was dead wrong about everything I thought I liked, which is, I've found to be generally true about my life. I'm always well, it's, wrong. Well,
0: it's the best of both worlds to to be able to have this
1: artistic life and yet have a regular schedule. Like, oh my god, yeah. You can you can live a real life. You can plan it. You can ha- you can plan a vacation. You know you're going to be off, you know, for Christmas, all these different things. It's a really really nice lifestyle. And the way Jason Kadom's shows run, they're very very uh um, short work days compared to most TV schedules the the funny thing is, is so I hadn't seen Friday Night Lights but while shooting the pilot up in San Francisco I thought oh, I'm going to check out this guy's other show Friday Night Lights and I started watching that and within the fourth episode I was like I felt backwards into a pot of gold. Like, I can't believe I'm working with this guy. Yeah. I, it was so exciting to have like, already have a job, and then in the middle of it get super excited about the job. I'm like, I can't believe I'm working with this guy. He's a genius, you know? Well, you have that thing like where you became... go into work the next day, and you, and you have a whole new <laughs> fear totally. of talking to the person. I'm early. I can't wait. Now I think the script's perfect. Yeah. So, now, was
0: there any, any tears of, of getting the part or anyone you were up against, or was it a pretty smooth process?
1: The only hiccup was um, I had, um, and again I think this somehow works on some universal level, which is <clears throat> I had just gotten really serious with Kristen, and Kristen I, Bell, I, your Kristen wife. Bell, my wife, my current wife, probably not my last, but my current wife, and um, she's gonna love I, it, for it? <laughs> the first time in my life. I had had a great relationship for nine years that ended as they do no, for no particular reason. But I certainly cared more about my career than I did about that relationship. And I was young and whatever. And this was the first time where uh, Chris and I had been together for probably two years. And I started thinking, I'm going to make decisions that are more about her and I than anything else. So I was offered the show, and it was going to shoot in um, Philadelphia. And I turned it down. And I really wanted to be on it, Parenthood.
0: It was going to shoot in Philadelphia. It was going to shoot in
1: Philadelphia originally. Oh, okay. And then they tried to, to find someone else, and they auditioned other people. And again, I, I wasn't willing to leave Kristen and try to make it You were work. like, have
0: you seen who I'm
1: dating? I can't <laughs> go to Philadelphia. Yeah. I will lose her. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I chose her. And then, and then what happened was, then Jason Kadams called me into his office like a month later. And said, maybe not even that long. Maybe three weeks later. He said, okay what if it shot in Oakland? Could you make that work? And I was like, yeah, it's a 45-minute flight. I could, yeah, I guess I could go up and work and then fly back and forth. And then I said to her, what if if it were in San Francisco? Mind you, she would have encouraged me to go do it in Philadelphia, but I just knew it wouldn't be smart. It's not how you build something into a marriage by going away for six years. So... Uh, I said, what about what about San Francisco? And she said, great. And I said, I'll get an apartment, and I'll move my parents in there, and then we can go together often. And then when I go there, I'll still I'll have family there. Like, I'm orchestrating this whole thing. I fly up to do the pilot. I'm on the airplane ride uh, up there, and I have a full-blown panic attack. I'm like, what have I just agreed to do? I hate going to the airport. I hate flying. I hate this whole thing. I'm going to do this four times a week now? What have I committed to? I mean, I'm in a full-blown, I've just made the worst decision of my life. And then, luckily, it's so uh, hard to shoot in San Francisco. They don't permit any streets. They don't, you know, your base camp's like an hour from where you shoot. It just became so cost prohibitive that they moved the show to seven minutes from my house. <laughs> so it all ended up working out perfectly. But I just think it's funny that, again, the, the, thing, the best thing that ever happened to me uh, career-wise came from starting by making a decision uh, to stay with my wife. This is very ironic and weird to me, how sometimes you get rewarded by doing the right thing, even though it seems like it's the opposite. You
0: know? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's certainly a great amount of luck involved in anyone who can tell a successful story about their career. And yes. and it hinges on these little things, right? Because if they'd have shot in Philadelphia, that would have just been it.
1: I don't think with how many movies... and. Uh, Stuff she did during that same period—I mean, it would just been very, very, very hard. I don't think two right. humans, you know, we certainly wouldn't have kids right now. And there's a whole bunch of things. So, now when you got on that show, um, you're obviously
0: with a bunch of actors who had been on a lot of network shows and uh-huh. done a lot of these multi-season. Craig T. Nelson and Lauren help, Graham. Lauren Graham. Yeah. Um, so, was there a period of Even- catch-up or? Or a period of where you felt like a bit of
1: an outsider in this world. I felt my insecurities were that when they announced the cast, the outside world would go, "How did he get on this show? Or why why'd they let him on?" Like these are a lot of them have been nominated for Emmys. Some have won Emmys. What's the dude from Punk? That's the negative voice in my head's always like, "How'd the dude from Punk get on here?" Um, but luckily, in real life, I don't feel that way. I, I think I'll feel that way, or when I imagine what everyone else is thinking, I have those fears. But when I show up to set, I feel competent, and I don't feel like these people are on a pedestal, and I'm not. So no,
0: I guess I'm asking if there was just in terms of the process of making an hour-long TV show and 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 doing that sort of you know uh, character arc that goes over. Like, did you have yeah. someone that you sort of bonded with that well, you Well, Peter, for together? sure.
1: Peter Krause, I have probably the most scenes with him. Mm. I adore him as a person. I actually like the work he's done prior to our show. You know, I loved Six Feet Under. <laughs> and um, he takes it very, very serious in a great way. And um, so, yeah, I love picking his brain about the experience of, yeah, being on something for five or six years. Um, and... Um, but, but, but what was unique about our show is that, so yeah, Craig T. Nelson did nine years of Coach or whatever he did, and Lauren did, I think, eight years of, of, of uh, her show, and, um, and, and Krause has been in a bunch of series. But the experience on Parenthood is so unique that everyone was kind of starting from scratch, in that none of those people had been on a show where you're allowed to improv. None of them had been on a show where they're shooting three cameras at once and you can overlap dialogue. No one's no one's working, you know, eight hour days. It's the whole thing was new for everyone. So everyone had this kind of excited, you know, new to the scene feeling where they're like, this feels experimental. This doesn't feel, it didn't feel like anything that anyone else had come from. Uh, It's just not how Kadams is, to his credit. You know, he's very loosey-goosey. He wants to find out what's unique inside of you, and he's not trying to get you to fit into his preconceived notion of who the character is. He wants you to breathe life into it, and he encourages that. It's just different. It's different for everyone. And that can actually be... Um, stressful for some people who, who who like working in the old way, and and then liberating for others, you know.
0: So I didn't know until I did research on you that you'd actually written a number of screenplays just sort of for hire, the things mm-hmm. that. that you didn't have any plans of making or directing yourself. How did that start? Because well, the other thing is that I also found out you were a pretty severe dyslexic growing up. And so it's fascinating to me you, that you First became, of all, I
1: commend your research. This is really. I can't even believe I'm worthy of looking up some of this information. So oh, no, I'm it's, very fascinating. Flattered you know any it's fascinating. Of this I mean, I,
0: I went pretty deep <clears> in the <throat> dyslexia thing. I found out that a new font was just released. I did too. Dyslexia. 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 Yeah. And, and it is wild how. You know, why did it take people so long to figure that out? That, like, yeah. a font could help you not mix up letters. And, I know. And, and, you know, I had read the Malcolm Gladwell book, at yeah, David yeah. and Goliath. I read that and, and learned some things about dyslexia that I didn't know. Um, but, but what's fascinating to me is that you would end up in a profession that, that is exactly the bane of a, of a young dyslexic's existence, Yes. which is writing and reading.
1: I regularly say to myself, I can't believe I'm employed as a writer. <laughs> it's so ironic. I mean You were really. going back
0: to grade school and just taking a teacher by the lapels? And-
1: I was I've been lucky enough through social networks to connect with my fifth grade teacher who really I would give all the credit for me sitting here, which is um, I mean, I, 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 when I say I could not read until fifth grade, I mean, I could not read. I, I couldn't, everyone else could read, and I could not read. And I believed I was an idiot, and I went to special ed, and they called my name. Like, you know, they'd walk in, there was three kids, and it was me and two kids that I just didn't want to be clumped up with. And this teacher, Mr. Wood somehow figured out that I was really good at math. Like, I don't know what he saw, but he just latched onto me. He's like, I think you're really good at math. And he started working with me with math. And and I really started excelling at math. And I really got geometry really quick. And in fifth grade, I became like the best math student in my class. And that coupled with being in this learning disabled, you know, special ed class, those things were, the, the math thing made me go, oh, my God, I'm not stupid. I'm not stupid. So you really just thought you were stupid? I, they were all getting it, and I wasn't. Now, granted, I didn't think I was stupid. I mean, I could converse with everyone. I had a good vocabulary in that. But, yeah, I felt stupid. I felt like I can't do this thing that everyone's doing. And every time they call me, I'm wrong, and it's embarrassing, and, you know, it's terrible. And then, out of nowhere, after five years of this, which when you're 11 is half your life— yeah. All of a sudden, I have the right answer to every math problem. And like Dax will show you how how that works, the trapezoid, you know. So cut to sixth grade, I'm on the math team uh, in my yearbook. You know, I'm on the math team and I'm in the science team. And then through that confidence, I just slowly started reading. And then once it started, it picked up. Steam. And then I had another amazing teacher, Mr. LeClaire in seventh grade, who I had written a short story. And he's like, this is really, really good. I'm going to submit it to be in the year end. You know, they put together a little short story thing from the students. And I, I got a short story in that thing and two years before I couldn't read. And then it just, it, it, it the momentum just grew and grew and grew until... I found that I loved reading for pleasure through Bukowski. I think he introduces a lot of young men to reading, thank God. I fell in love with Bukowski, and then that led to everything else. And and surely before I ever wanted to be an actor or a comedian or anything, I wanted to be a writer. Like I just, I was really? going to be a writer, yes. And then so right when I started getting the opportunity to be in movies, right when I was in Without a Paddle, I thought, well, if I'm now going to have opportunities to, to act in movies, maybe i can use this as an excuse to start selling screenplays so right after that movie i got home and i sold my first screenplay
0: wait so okay so let's so hit and run was a film you made in 2012 yes. right and you wrote directed starred did the stunts yeah used your own car pretty much that yeah. was your my entire my own wife thing. but <laughs> your own your wife <laughs> is in it um but uh, you also did a film a couple years before that brother's justice yes which was Another attempt at that same thing, where yeah. where you wrote, produced, directed, starred in. Yeah.
1: Uh, did you? I paid nuts? for that one too. You paid for it, okay. <laughs> but it was, uh, okay. So very modest, as you can tell from the production value. <laughs> no, but <laughs> I, I
0: think it's really interesting mm-hmm. to see. Okay, so that was before Parenthood. That was when you're sort of in the middle of all this stuff, right? You're getting yes. some films it's, and you're writing and and I just
1: done. Empl- Employee of the month was coming out. Okay which was a a, a Dane Cook's, you know, comedy at Lionsgate. And um, I decided to just start shooting. I was so ill-prepared and I just started shooting this movie and I wasn't positive where it was going. So when you bring up that movie, I'm half like embarrassed and laughing because it looks terrible and it sounds terrible. I mean, I spent five grand to put that thing in the can. I mean, I ended up incurring like another 40 grand of finishing costs that I was all out of pocket on. And then I'm also super-duper proud of it because there's nothing there. I mean, we don't have a single permit. We have no locations. And I did string together a movie. And we went to Austin Film Festival, and we won the Audience Award, and I just couldn't believe it was happening. And still, there's so much bizarre humor in that. So I'm like, half of them, I'm really proud of it. And then the other half, I'm so embarrassed by it. So when anyone brings it up, they're either going to say, that is the weirdest, funniest movie. Or they're going to be like, what the hell was that thing? Well, I half look of it at was it. real and half of it was fake.
0: Right, right. And you can't quite tell the line sometimes between the real and the fake. And for people who don't know, it's a mockumentary about you as you yes. deciding you're going to quit comedy and become an action star and do <laughs> right, a right, right. a martial arts film. Yes. That basically involves And it's revealed that I don't actually have any training. <laughs> right. <laughs> the and the whole thing north. is that the script's <laughs> gonna culminate with you fighting your way down a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> Which is awesome, yes. and Tom Arnold's in it, and Bradley Cooper, and, <laughs> and I pitch everyone. Yeah, I pitch everyone. It's but, the same punchline. But day. and, and <laughs> you know, uh, obviously, it was made. You can tell completely <laughs> yeah. modestly on a
1: and three, before a really chip good, camcorder. That's <laughs> yes, before good technology existed. Now we could have made that same movie, and it'd actually be passable as a real movie.
0: But I, no, what I the reason I bring it up is because what I want to know about is the impetus to go and do that because at that point you're working, you're making money, you're, you're writing screenplays. And, and the first question that comes up to my mind is, was that your way of writing yourself into a job or was it that you want to have work out there with you as a director and no one's going to hire you? Like what was the impetus for saying, I'm going to go and do (laughs) this thing?
1: It was, it was, um, kind of mounting frustration. Uh, and again, this was, uh, at the risk of sounding ungrateful, which I'm not, I had just done probably four or five comedies in a row, and I have this little bubble of control. You know, I'm one character among 15 or however many, and um, and I can control the tone of my character because I found that the little pockets I would deliver in different movies worked, and I thought, right. well, maybe I could build on that, and I can maybe that that tone that I have inherently is is. Is something people want to see, you know? I, I don't know? I just still don't know the answer to that question. I've not gone and done a big studio movie to find that out, but it just really came from. Um, I have a lot of ideas, and uh, you know, I I, I I I want to do more than just the, that little sliver in a movie, that right. act in it, and um, and I had a weird opportunity when we were shooting that, which is I was doing all this promotion for other movies, so. I really went on a real talk show and did a karate demonstration, which I, I don't know I karate. Know. And trying to explain to the show why I was going <laughs> to do karate became like, you know, it, it was blurry between what was art and what was life. And just at the end of the day, I was on a talk show doing karate, which I think was just really funny. That you were on there for another movie. And, and yeah. uh,
0: so, so clearly, like. I was
1: there, sent there to promote Employee of the Month. Right, and, and and you end up sort of. All I doing say a about scene. Employee of the Month is just, I hope you enjoy because it it's my last comedy. I'm right? leaving comedy, but I was just being a buffoon everywhere I went. In fact, what's really funny is Kristen. When I finally met Kristen, um, at a friend's dinner party, um, she said, "I have met you one other time. I didn't meet you, but you almost kicked me on the." Other. <laughs> on the red carpet of the Teen Choice Awards, I looked over and there was a guy in a karate outfit doing kung fu and he almost kicked me. I was like, oh my god, I was filming this stupid movie, Brothers Justice. So that was her only or impression of yeah. me and then somehow we still ended up married. When you write and direct your own thing, for me, I'm only trying to make a movie I wanna see. I have a singular goal of like here's my opportunity to make the movie I want to go see. So if I do that, it really doesn't matter what the results are. Truly, my my esteem's not linked to that. My esteem's linked to did it did I execute this idea I had, and I didn't on either movie. I, but I got pretty close close enough on both of them that I feel um, I feel proud regardless of what I I, I say this sincerely I. Never read a single review of Brothers Justice, and I've never read a single review of Hit and Run. Nor will I ever. Because I, I truly made that movie for myself. I my favorite movie as a kid was Smoking the Bandit. And I've since fallen in love with like Flirting with Disaster and Alexander Payne movies and all these other movies. So I'm like, if I can make Smoking the Bandit that plays on another level. That's what I'm going for. And I think with the exception of a few scenes, I got close enough to that goal that I I, I don't need anything else. I feel good. And then hit and run, you know, These people gave us a million and a half dollars to make a car chase movie. You cannot make a car chase movie for a million and a half dollars. So I think the best case scenario is that we would just have a movie for all of us to watch. There's no, I had no fantasy that it would get distributed, much less on a bunch of screens, or that it would go out foreign, or you know, I that wasn't my expectation. My thing was just, can I make some cool stunts? Uh, and chase sequences for this little amount of money. And if we did that, I'm going to feel pretty awesome. I-, I can't find a downside. Now, whether the LA Times thought something or. this just doesn't matter. You describe it as a way to play out your Smokey and the Bandit fantasies. Yeah, yes. Um,
0: but in a way, I, I think, you know, that shortchanges some of the. Um, just some of the themes in that movie, which are very sort of. A lot more dramatic and adult than a Smokey and the Bandit type of film. For sure, yeah. And and, and I found it to be okay. Take the scene in the in I guess it's the Gray Barber when she says, "Pull over, and let me out of the car." And you're you're driving your now wife, who plays your your fiance in the movie, yeah, to Los Angeles for a job interview. Mm-hmm. And on the drive, she finds out that your past includes bank robbery
1: that it resulted and, in a homicide, yeah, and a homicide
0: <laughs> and and she didn't know any of this, and you end up in this grape arbor, and you're giving the speech that guys sometimes have to give, which is, none of my past behavior will, will make you believe anything good about me, but I still am going to find a way yes. to convince you to stay with me.
1: Yeah. You're going to have to accept that my past is not going to inform my future.
0: Right. and, and I,
1: Which is hard to convince someone of.
0: But I thought the scene was so well-written and so um, so convincing. And also this is – the audience is sort of finding it out along with her yes. to some extent. And so um, you are – as an audience member, I'm sure, making this film, you're worried that how is the audience going to stay with this guy? Like you got to make yeah. sure – and it's true. You're there and you're like, don't leave him. I believe
1: in this yeah. guy, right? yeah. It was definitely tricky uh, to ride that line. I think what saves it is, um, regardless of what you're finding out about him, he is actively leaving uh, witness protection for her. He's actively outrunning people for her. He's getting hit in the nose for her. He's you know reintroduced to all of his, these people he tried to escape for her. So I think he's making so many sacrifices that he stays sympathetic you know and it and it and it gets down to and i 'm open about it. so many of the themes in this movie are stealing largely from being in recovery, like getting sober, making amends, getting at peace with who you are and what you did, and le- and not carrying around the shame of that anymore and and um, and that 's something I had in my real life with Kristen, which is like when you just hear the headlines of what my life was like, it 's very scary. And uh, but and then I'm saying it in such a cavalier way because I've already processed it all. I've already said sorry, and it's just not – I don't allow it to give me shame. It's just who I was, and it's how I ended up here. So it seems as if I'm sociopathic sometimes when I'm going, oh, yeah, I smoked crack with that guy. That's how I know that guy We used to smoke crack. And then she's like, well, no, you can't smoke crack. I can't – nor can I be with someone who did, nor do I want to have a kid with. So all of that is wrapped up in that movie – and it, and it it really makes you um, recognize again. This is a recovery thing, which is um, people judge you by your actions, not your intentions. Most of us wish everyone would judge us by our intentions, but that's just not how it, it works. So, luckily, his actions for every step of the way are for her, and are sacrifices for her. And so, you know, even she has to acknowledge like what he's going through. And I think. The one, the one thing I really was happy with about the movie, the way it turned out, is it, it really, for better or worse, it is. Uh, uh, it's a romantic movie, and it's a guy boy has girl, and boy loses girl, and he gets her back. Right. And I did not want to make some speech where my beautiful words demonstrated why she should forgive all this stuff. I didn't want that scene. And what worked out well, I think, in the movie is we're at my dad's house, and she sees that. I haven't even talked to my dad because I'm so ashamed of who I was. And if I wouldn't even go talk to him, of course I kept that from her. And she said, just so you know, I really think he is the boy you wanted him to be now. And by having to tell him that, she's telling herself that.
0: She's defending you to the to yes, your father.
1: Yes, and it kind of gets her over the hump and makes her, and I don't know, it just worked out really well. How but did I, I you didn't go about writing to, that? I mean I would love to tell you I had it perfectly mapped out cuz I want you to think I'm a genius and I and I, I can, did. can juggle all that okay. But that script more than any other that I've ever written I just let it I I was watching that movie. I went away. I didn't we didn't have kids yet and I said, "Honey, I've got 3 weeks. If we're going to make this movie, I have got to turn in a draft." She goes, "Okay." And I went to Palm Springs for 3 weeks and I sat there and I watched this movie unfold. I don't really know how it ended up the way it did. I'm so fascinated with this idea that, that first off, that the
0: film is sort of a parable for your own recovery process in AA and mm. also that you're, you're making it with your future wife. Yeah. Now, in terms of writing dialogue for a woman, mm-hmm. did you use the obvious advantage you have, which is you could just give her a scene and, and play it and see if it's
1: working? You know, um, even though I'm a huge fan of improv, this movie, because we had such a tiny amount of time to shoot what was a 136-page script, I had 25 days and three car chases. There was not time to improv. So, I mean, with the exception of, like, probably when Bradley was around, Mm -hmm. um, I made time for him and I to play a bit. Uh, generally speaking, this had the least amount of improv I've ever done in a movie. Uh, I had the huge advantage of, Kristen's my wife. I know how she talks. I know what great points she's made in the past. And when we fight about my Lincoln, like we've had that argument. I, I had spent all this time rebuilding my Lincoln in the first car ride we took together. She's like, you spent this much time and money and it sounds like it's going to break. That's what you got. Like so, So much of that's there. She's very anti-violence, anti-anything masculine that's threatening to the species, which is appropriate, and I'm very much, you know, we've, we've had a lot of those debates, so that was a huge advantage. I always say, and, I, and I'm not saying this just because she, she, I love her, but um, she's the single easiest actor you could ever write for because you could have her tell a very hard-to-tell joke with a very specific delivery, you can write that scene, not even worry about it. you know she's gonna get it. The next scene you could have her full breakdown academy award crying emotional scene. she'll knock that out, then I could have her fucking sing in the next scene like there's nothing I can't write Where's that, that she can't do. It's so liberating, like me i gotta I can't only write myself specific scenes I have a range and <laughs> I gotta write within that range but her the range is like this big I can write any scene from any movie I've ever seen she could pull off it's very liberating I, I love acting with her so much I've got to do it in a few different movies and now we do these Samsung commercials together and no matter what she's my favorite scene partner I because we can click right into what's real We don't. I don't have to manufacture it it's just right there at all times and it's so wonderful and also um, you know, we push in on her and she's crying. And, like, I know what song makes her cry. She doesn't know. But right as the camera starts moving, I've had them cue up that song. And it comes on and and it immediately triggers that. Plus it triggers, he's so thoughtful, He he did this for me. Right. And it's just there. Like, she's just bawling. And then afterwards, she's like, "You're fucking cheating, you cheated." And I'm like, "I know I'm going to cheat a lot during this movie." So like it's just fun to know someone's triggers and to help without going, "Okay, I really need you to turn on the waterworks in this one, you know, Right? Right, and also, that's something you couldn't do with an actor. You didn't No, even in, in that scene, leading up to the one you were talking about where we're in the Orange Grove and we're, we're fighting, we were in the Corvettes yelling, and sh- she's finding out everything. Well, well, how did you steal this car? Well, I did this. And well, well how do you know how to do that? Well, because I, I, well, I kind of lied about this. My off-camera, I asked her beforehand, do you want me to like, go dark? And she's like, yes, please, go dark. So, I'm thinking of all the potential things I could have done that would really have betrayed her. And the information on my side I'm giving her is terrible. I mean, it's. And true. It's not true. It's not true. But it's believable stuff that could have happened. You know what I'm saying? I used our real history. And I said, you know that time you're out? And I'm making up lies, but they're very hurtful. <laughs> but I asked her beforehand, do you want me to do that? And she said, I really want you to do that. I want to fucking hate you right now in, in this scene. Again, I don't know any other actor I would work with well enough to be able to create a perfect evil right. thing to say. Right. But it was fun. After the take, like, we just hug each other. And and what a document for your kids to see their
0: parents, <clears throat> young and in love. And, you know, like, I wish I had that on my parents' You know, I get the sense from talking to you and reading about you and everything that, that um, you know, if if it wasn't the right person who, you know, maybe didn't understand the nuances of how to talk to you, mm-hmm. um, you could easily maybe shut down. And uh-huh. it seems like she has this ability to hold a mirror up to you in a way that allows you to see yourself and want to make those changes without f-
1: feeling threatened. I mean, is that is that off base, mm-hmm. that... No, it's assumption. not. What really, really happened <clears throat> when we met was I'd had a lot of stepdads. I had been around a lot of violent people growing up. I'm an alcoholic. My brother's an alcoholic. My dad was an alcoholic. Um, I really believe the, the world was all wolves, period. I would have bet my life on that when I met her. I think I was. Trust no one. 32. Everyone's got an angle. What perfectly sums this up is if we meet a stranger on the sidewalk, Kristen and I, and he comes up and says, excuse me, my first thought is, what does this fucker want? Her first thought sincerely is, this guy might cure cancer. (laughs) I mean, that's how she views the world. And I realized through meeting her and all of her friends and the world she lived in was like, "Oh, there's a whole other world of like nice sheep. Not that she's a sheep, but just there's kindness and there's, trust and there's generosity and she's not involved in all these charities because she wants you to think she's a good person. She genuinely is worried about these people and wants to help. That's so different from the world I came from that she really opened up like a whole other side of the world that I I truly didn't know existed. I I was very cynical and um, through her I've got to uh, see that there's like a, a ton of good people, and there's a ton of goodness, and I've tried my hardest to walk towards her for seven years. She's also gotten more cynical. I like to think <laughs> I've made her worse, yeah. which she probably needed to be a little worse from when I first met her. But we are really opposites, just like those, the characters in that movie. I mean, we, we, we come from such a different starting point. Um, and I do think it's probably the neatest thing about life. And I've said to her, okay, I was a drug addict, and I was this, and I did these bad things, and you went to Catholic school, went straight to college, always good. We live in the same house. We have the same two kids. We make the same amount of money. We have the same job. Look how different of paths you can take and end up in the exact same spot in life. It's, it's insane. And I think as a parent, I need to remind myself of that. And I have friends who have kids who are worried that, oh, well, they're straying off over here and they're going to turn out to. You don't know what they're going to turn out to be. They may end up in the same house as Kristen. You know, you just don't know. It's it's wild how, how what a different road you can both take to the same exit. Do you remember one of the first times that she
0: was able to gently <laughs> point out something about you that maybe wasn't? <laughs> A good way to be (laughs)
1: here. I'm going to tell you, it's not gentle at all. She's very funny, and she makes fun of me, and it's so embarrassing. Anytime I'm remotely mancho, or I get in a fight with someone at a grocery store, I mean, the way she makes fun of me is it's it's devastating. (laughs) How does she do that? Something as simple as this, and I can't believe I'm going to say it out loud. When we met, I, was, I lived on my own. I was lonely as hell. I had this house. I didn't know what I was doing. I had been in a one-bedroom apartment for 10 years, and now I have this big house. I don't know what to hang up on the walls, so I end up putting a lot of like stills from movies I've been in, right? Right. Those are predominantly I'm in them, which is <laughs> why they sent them to me. I'll never forget the first time she came over to my house, like, how hey, would you? She goes, well... You certainly have a lot of photos of yourself hung up, don't you? (laughs) I was so embarrassed, but I didn't have anyone else to put on the wall. Well who the hell was I gonna hang on the wall? But I was so embarrassed. I'm like, I do have a lot of photos. I'm like, what's going on? Those all came down like the second (laughs) she left the house, but just a million things over the last seven years. She'll go like Do you feel like a whole story about how you kicked that guy's ass, boy, everyone thought that was really cool. (laughs) I'm like all right, I'll never tell another fight story and dinner again. Okay. What else? Do you, do
0: you think that in some ways, like, you look to her as, as the person who had the proper life training, and you have to pick up certain things that,
1: that yeah. she— Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think she's equally, equally off-base as I am. I mean, she lives in La La Land, and I live in, you know, wherever the hell I live, Sin City. And, and somewhere in the middle is the truth. So I'm also making fun of her. Because she'll give, you know, she'll believe anyone's scam story. If she's at a gas station and someone tells her, like, my motorhome broke down, and I've got twenty five kids and it she'll give them thousand dollars. You know what she'll <laughs> She needs me to make fun of her too. And we what's great is we we are really good at like we come always from the opposite ends and I hear her whole thing, she hears my whole thing, and we both recognize like, okay, well probably in the middle here is is the right answer. It's almost maybe that because you're so different. You,
0: you maybe aren't competitive in ways that if you were too much alike, you might battle more.
1: Yeah. Or there's just no one objective uh, involved if you're both the same. And what's funny is like there's a saying in recovery, which is uh, mm-hmm. take contrary action, right? So we know what results you get when you do everything that feels right. I end mm-hmm. up, Drunk somewhere you know like I I know what when it feels right the results of those behaviors So why don't you try just as an experiment if you want to do this why don't you do the opposite Just see where you end up because we know what happens when you do what you want every time And so when I met her all these things were like no this is not what I want And then this voice was just like I was three years sober at the time and I thought Shit maybe this is it like this is contrary action like it feels so wrong And right out of the gates, her and I, we were in couples therapy right out of the gates. No kidding. Absolutely. I mean, I bet within the first three months we were dating, we were in couples therapy. And that wasn't a red flag. No. Um, I can tell you the coolest thing that happened in couples therapy that I I, I was like, oh my gosh, I get it. We just started dating. We both got offered this movie, One in Rome. The studio said, we don't want to hire two people that are dating this early on, because if they break up, they're going to fuck up the entire production. Right. So the producer said that to me, who's a friend of mine. And I said, you have my word. I've never lied to you. I will not break up with her no matter what happens on this movie. And he goes, okay, I trust you. And they hired us. And we went and lived together in this apartment, having only dated for three months. It was hard. I'm telling you, had I not made that promise... We would have broken up 25 times on that movie, guaranteed. We got back from the movie and she said, what if we went to my therapist for couples therapy? I said, well, it's a little weird. I feel like since you already know him, he's always going to be on your side. But she goes, well, he's been sober for 25 years. I go, okay, well, that, maybe we speak the same language. We go to this guy. He meets with me five minutes before we do the couples thing. And I say to him, I'm going to be dead honest with you. Had I not promised that producer we weren't going to break up, I think we would have. I would have broken up with her for sure. I go, and now we're back in real life. I know we're going to need to work on this to make it work. And he said, well, don't you understand, Dax, that is real life. Saying you're not going to break up with someone and sticking to that. That's real life. That's what a commitment is. That's actually <laughs> what it is. And now you got to find out how to make it work because there isn't any other option. Right. And I was like... Oh, my God, that really is what a commitment is. You're not breaking up, so you got to make this thing work. And then this guy is amazing. He listened to us talk. He goes, just talk about something that's at issue for you. So we pick the topic that we fight about. We start talking. He goes, okay, stop. I mean, within seven minutes. He goes, here's what's happening. Dax is an ex-scumbag, and he, he feels guilty really easy. And you get quiet a lot because that's your nature. So when you get quiet, he thinks he's in trouble, but he doesn't feel like he should be in trouble because he, he was always in trouble, and now it's, you know, blah, blah, blah. So from now on, when you're thinking you're going to get quiet, just tell him, hey, I'm going to be quiet, but it has nothing to do with you. That one little simple thing, we go, okay, we'll try that. We weren't back there for another four months. Like, that that thing worked. And then we went in there again, we were having another thing, and he goes... Okay, great, here's what's happening. When you say that, Dax thinks this, and when you say that, da-da-da-da, just do this. He'd give us something very practical to do. We've only seen this guy probably six times, and he, like, got out every little kink, and it was all just communication kinks that we had. Like, it would trigger my thing, and then I'd trigger hers, and then we'd be off to the races. But it's the first time I've ever done couples therapy at the beginning of a relationship instead of trying to fix one that's been destroyed. And i got to say, we all have it backwards. You should start there. Right, right. You know, ironically, I think the best thing that ever happened to me is I was an alcoholic. Had I not become one and I hadn't been forced to really figure out how to tell myself the truth, um, I don't know that I ever would have, you know. But if you're a a hardcore drug addict, you get to a point in your life where it's like, I'm either going to make these changes or I'm actually going to die. The stakes are so fucking high that you really have to change. There, there's no other option. You 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 can't live with the consequences of not changing. It's that dire. And unless you have those stakes, I I really sympathize with people who are trying to make changes because it, it's 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 hard to change who you are at your core unless your head's on fire. You know, it, it's 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 really hard. If if you're, there's not a ton to lose, odds are you're not going to confront this stuff. So, what I'm saying is I'm so lucky that it got that life or death for me that I had to learn how to stop lying to myself and tell myself the truth. And then through that, I'm now able to have a relationship that I can work on and be vulnerable and admit my shortcomings and my failures and all these things. And um, I just don't know that I would ever got there without it being life or death.
0: You you say that, and it brings up something I read about. You you, you sort of published a eulogy about your father. Uh Uh-huh. And I was very moved by it. And um, one line in particular got me, and and it was very emotional. And it was you describing how near the end of his life, when he had cancer, mm-hmm. you would hold him and hug him and stroke the little hairs on the back of his yeah, bald yeah. head. Uh-huh. And you described, Basically, in a nutshell, what I took from it was he was really not in your life from about age three to age sixteen, uh-huh. and you have a lot of resentment for that. Mm-hmm. And so you had limited contact with him throughout mm-hmm. your life, and then he got cancer, and and mm-hmm. you chose to spend a lot more time with him. Yeah. And at one point, you you drove around and visited all the houses either of you had lived in. Yes. In the Detroit area. Yeah. Right. You took this tour
1: of your life. Uh huh. I was so moved by that, which I didn't even know I was taking. He he he. The, the impetus that. of that was, I'm gonna want to show Lincoln my daughter every place I grew up in. So since I'm back in Michigan for him, and after he dies, I don't know how often I'll be back there. I'd like to drive around and take a picture of every little house I lived in so I can show her. This is where daddy came from, you know. We live in a house with a swimming pool. That's very confusing to me (laughs) that that's my daughter's childhood. I just felt like I wanted to show her the welfare apartment I lived in in this dirt road house and blah, blah, blah. And I'm with him every day that I'm home because I'm taking care of him. So we're on the ride together, but I had no intention of that being what it was. But so in this (laughs) photo gathering mission, we parked in front of the house I was three in when they got divorced. And it's like, we're both staring at it, and it's like, um, oh, I remember when you guys moved out. It's like, this is a conversation we would've never had, but we're looking at the house, and the one that really got me, that, w- that, that enabled me to kind of stop seeing him as this dad who disappointed me, and more just like a guy who made a, the wrong choice, we, we went in front of the apartment that me and my brother and my mom moved into when we left his house. And he goes, uh, we're looking at it. And it's a dump. And he goes, uh, I drove the couch over and I dropped it off. And I, I, I left and I got to that light. And I sat on the side of the road right there and I cried for four hours. I couldn't drive the car. I couldn't drive the car because I knew I had just driven away from something that I was never going to be able to fix and it was i blew it up it was over i drew i drove away and i shouldn't have and i couldn't go back and i couldn't drive home and i just sat there and i was like my fantasy was you fucking dropped the couch couch off went to the bar and got some ass like i i didn't <laughs> think that that happened and oh man i can only imagine what it's like driving away from your family for the first time As a parent now,
0: it's impossible to I can't even
1: comprehend it. And in fact, for years I was really, really resentful at him for missing, for not being a dad to me. And about eight months into having our daughter, for the first time I was like, I don't feel bad for me at all. I feel terrible for him that he missed this. It's much more powerful on this side. It's much more of an experience to be a parent to a child than to be a child of a parent. He's the one that missed out on a ton, not me, you know. What a shift. I, I feel so, so sad for him that he didn't get to witness it all and be a part of all of it, you know. I wasn't the victim as much as he was the victim. And Again, and I th- I've i said this once before, he was sober, too. He died 25 years sober, and, and uh, I'll, I'll meet people in recovery who have done terrible things, and I can so easily see past that and see how it's just they're humans and they're fallible. And I can forgive them for, I mean, it's not that it's my place to forgive them, but I don't look at them as like the sum of their mistakes. But it's so hard not to look at your parents as the sum of their mistakes. And I just thought, I'm not not granting him any of the forgiveness I would a stranger who walks into a meeting, you know. Right. It's hard. Well,
0: when you say of the, the the alcoholic thing where the stakes had to be so high for you to make a change, um, in, in that eulogy of sorts, you also said um, that, that your regret is that you wish you had done more things like that at the end. and and that you wish you had done more projects with your dad together, and and uh-huh. that you kind of intimated that at the heart, you guys had more in common than maybe you wanted to believe when you were growing up and and it made me think like that's very similar like it took I, I wonder if as humans, it takes a high stakes event like cancer or like knowing we're going to lose mm-hmm. something to ever even understand how much it means to us,
1: yeah. I sadly, I do. Yeah, I do. I think that's human nature. Too. And and how do
0: you apply that knowledge as a parent to your own kids? And how, you know, how how do you take that lesson and and apply it yeah. to make your your experience with your own kids better?
1: I also should say, you know, we had done a ton of we had made a ton of progress before he actually got diagnosed with cancer, and um, my dad got diagnosed with cancer four days before the premiere of Hit and Run. And I then was back for the next three months, back and forth to Detroit. He saw that movie, I'm not kidding, he saw that movie, I bet, 14 times. He would call me, he'd take a different girl to that movie, once a week. Oh, I got you. boy, I didn't realize that. You know what scene I really like? Like, he, through 14 viewings, he had found something in every single scene that he wanted to call and tell me about. Like, I had that moment. He was so fucking proud of me. He could not believe that I had made this movie Hit and Run. And he loved it so much, and he loved taking girls to it, and he loved taking his friends to it. And so, like, I i had that, man, and, and so few people get that. Do you think in some ways you made Hit and Run for your dad? <clears throat> no. In fact, no, I'm not that big enough of a person. <laughs> I wish... <laughs> No, I. Uh, you know, I. I. Uh, a lot of my issues with my dad, I gotta say, are I. I. I am in love with my mother so much. I mean, they really. He wasn't even that bad to me. Like when people, people who on the outside who hear my version of me and my dad, they'll go, "Oh, bullshit! He picked you up every other weekend. He, you guys were fine, right?" The reason it's so. Well, I had so many things is just that my mother I have the op- I'm just so in love with my mom it's incredible and the fact that he left that woman I just I couldn't forgive him for that like that I mean it's it's as much my own stuff is how on earth did you leave my mom with two kids you know it's I just am so protective of her I think a lot of my baggage with him is just being pissed at him for, right. for my mom right, right as right. much as me now I made that movie for my mom for sure Tell me about that. It's scary to try any of these things to write something and put it out there. And again, as you said, you know, you're know you going to get judged like crazy for it. And uh, um, my mom is such that growing up, she just like, she thought I was fantastic. When, when the world thought I was stupid, she thought I was a genius. When I was getting kicked out of school, she thought I was hilarious. Like she has just, she's, she is the absolute bedrock. For any confidence I have, she just thinks I'm great and I think she's fantastic. And so I think, you know, um, anytime I took a big leap in life or, or, or rolled the dice, it was always just that I had someone that believed in me so much, which has been her from day one.
0: Right. Well, I read once that you uh, that you said, and this was fairly recently, you said, you know, I can breathe a little easier now. I've had some experience, I've had some success, and I don't feel like every project is now my last. I feel like Mm. I belong here a little bit. And do you think about a long-term design for your career um, in the sense of, I mean, how far out are you thinking and and what is that thinking determined by now versus say,
1: before kids? Well, I still believe that I don't know best for myself. That's something I've learned. I gave the example of parenthood. I didn't think I wanted to be on TV, and then here this is the greatest thing I've, I've done work-wise. So I now know I have concrete proof that I actually don't know what's best for me. But what I do know is that I proved I can be on a TV show for long term. That's great. I proved I can write and direct with Hit and Run. That's great. I've been in movies, and I've done a good job. I've I proved I can do that. Although I don't know where it's all going, I... this. I feel a lot safer now simply that I have more options now. I I have there's a lot more avenues open to me where I feel like I've, I've I've proven myself in these different things and um and that feels great because when I was just acting in movies and I was waiting and sometimes they don't make a movie for 3 months and maybe there's they're making two this spring and every actor in town's looking for it and you know that was a scary way to live and I would have 8 month periods where I was like, "Well, that's it." This happens all the time. There are tons of actors I grew up watching, and I never saw them again, so that's clearly what's happening to me, whereas now I feel like I may not be James Gandolfini, but if you need a dude to come into your TV show and give a little life in the five minutes he's on screen, I I can do that. What I would love to do is write and direct movies. So I think some people get into directing because it's an ego-driven thing, whereas Well, it's the next rung up the ladder, right? So either writers will tell themselves they want to direct simply because that seems to be what you should do, or a DP will want to direct, or the AD will want to direct. And that's great, and a ton of them are great directors. But the job is really for people who just naturally love solving problems. Like, if you're the type of person who loved a story problem, you would love directing, because all it is all day long is a bunch of problems that need fixing. You watch the rehearsal, and you go, hmm scene works for the first third it doesn't work here we lose our momentum and then we kind of get it back at the end okay let's look at the script oh if you took that out and then you went from there to there then we would build 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 and then what if you just bring that one back at the end? you know like it's just a puzzle all day long and if you love puzzles it's just so stimulating and then it's gratifying because when it works it so clearly works you know it's not as subjective as you might, you know, as some people might think. It's like very obvious when the scenes work or don't work, if there's an intention in them.
0: You know, what I find so amazing about this conversation is that, you know, I I become aware of you as an actor on Parenthood, and and then as I dig into your life and, and see what it is you're doing, I find out that, like, you know, you are, you have a, a total immersive curiosity about the whole business. You've written this stuff. You, you direct. You've. You've optioned properties and pitched, and like I think that's a sea change from, an you know, a, a previous generation of an actor who really sort of that was that was their place, and and whereas it happened occasionally, it didn't happen as much as it happens now. And I think that as as viewers and consumers of entertainment, we you're right; it's the golden age of television where we are. We get the 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 great benefit of all these people who don't see that they have to do just one thing yeah you know and and it's it's fascinating to just get to know you a little bit and and i'm just such a fan and i i I'm really super flattered that
1: this. you wanted me on the show because I've seen the guests you've had, and when I got called, I was like, I don't know if I really deserved to oh my come God. talk for an hour. But well, that is my ultimate. I know to say yes know. to every opportunity, though.
0: <laughs> no, I, I mean, gosh, for me, you know, it went from convincing my friends to come do this to actually a guy I have no connection with, uh-huh. and you're here, and so. Well, we did share a dinner in Boston. We did share a dinner in Boston. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, thank way. you for doing this. I yeah, absolutely.